Chapter Sixteen of *The Hall in the Grove* by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Questions and Answers. There was one pair of ears that evening, eagerly listening for every crumb which fell from any one's lips concerning Chautauqua. This was none other than young Robert Fenton. You will remember that he was the inspirer of this special branch and certainly was as much interested in its success as any human being could be. Were not his father and mother both members, and had he not had nicer evenings with them since this circle came into existence, talking up Roman history, than he ever remembered before in his life? I will even admit that it added spice to his enjoyment to discover that he was an authority when controverted points were being discussed, and that his mother had once said to Caroline, and young Charlie Mathers, in his hearing, I think you must be mistaken in your date, for my Robert says thus and so, and he is generally very correct. Oh yes, Robert Fenton was an intense believer in the CLSC, and had an intense longing to visit Chautauqua. He drew near when he heard the name, and presently made a bold petition. Won't you tell us all about Chautauqua? I mean to go there this summer if I can, and I think I can. Now anybody who knows the man that has made Chautauqua what it is, knows that the keen questioning eyes and eager smiles of a wide-awake boy fascinate him instantly. He turned quickly at the sound of the fresh young voice. All about Chautauqua? Yes, sir, with pleasure. Where shall I begin? So it transpired that there was another catechetical exercise that evening. One by one the promenaders halted in his vicinity, little by little the circle widened, until fully one-third of the guests had arranged themselves within hearing, to listen and question, while the one best posted told them about the place which had such a charmed life to some of them. "'You ought to go this season, every one of you,' Dr. Monteith said, suddenly, breaking away from the listening group and joining a company who were trying to listen, and yet were too far away to hear much. "'I hope for a very large delegation from our circle. Mr. Fenton, have you decided to take your family?' "'Yes, sir,' was that gentleman's prompt answer. "'If nothing prevents, I hope to spend about six weeks there this summer.' "'If Robert were within hearing, he would applaud,' Mrs. Fenton said, laughing. "'He has never been able to bring his father to so outspoken a decision as that.' The group around Dr. Monteith were eager to question, and finding him well posted, they poured out their queries. Several of them had already arrived at definite decisions. Even pretty little Amy Allison declared she could go if she wanted to, and she believed she wanted to.' She had intended to go to Long Branch, but some way it seemed to her that this would be nicer. There were those who were gravely silent about the matter. James Ward had canvassed the subject somewhat thoroughly in his own mind, and decided that it would be foolish to expect his father to expend so much money for what would look to him like a mere entertainment. Caroline, as she had said, had as much expectation of going to Europe as to Chautauqua and as for Paul, he had not even given the matter a thought beyond the one involved in a very positive statement made not long before to Robert Fenton. One of these days I mean to go there, but it won't be for several years yet. So these three, while they listened interestedly, 
did not give such listening as those who said, I'm going. But many were listening and questioning, evidently with a view to future plans. What about the teacher's retreat? questioned Mr. Fenton. Any benefit in that to people who never expect to be teachers? Decidedly, yes. The very best educators in the country are to be there to exhibit what they consider the best ways of presenting thought to young minds. Aside from the personal benefit to be obtained through those lectures, conversations, and the like, no parent can afford to do without the knowledge and the stimulus which they present. "'What is the expense of living at Chautauqua?' came from another side of the room. "'Now that question is almost as difficult to answer as it would be for you to tell me what is the expense of living in Centerville,' their victim said, smiling. The truth is, it depends on the sort of living which you are pleased to want. If you keep house, it will depend on the number of rooms in your house, the size of your party, the brains of your clerk, and the economy of your cook, as well as on several other things. If you board, it will depend on the size and style of the room you require, and the number and variety of the delicacies which you are willing to pay for. There is a hotel with good accommodations, there are any number of private boarding-houses, with prices varying according to location and accommodations. There are cottages to rent, where you can, as I said, set up an establishment of your own. There are restaurants where you can buy almost any necessary that can be thought of. There are tents which you can rent for a trifle, and roll yourself in a blanket at night, and buy a pitcher of milk and some rolls at the baker's in the morning, and live as cheaply as you can anywhere on earth. "'Somebody told my Fred that there was a school of languages, or something of that sort,' said Mr. Morris. "'Is there any special advantage in that line?' Six weeks of thorough drill in whatever language you choose, or as many of them as you choose, the teachers being the best. Some go so far as to say the best that can be found in this country, or any other.' such work as that is worth a great deal to any scholar thus the questions and answers continued dr monteith's click seeming as deeply interested as the circle in the front parlour and all attempt to introduce any other topic having been suspended it is safe to say that certain ones at least were wiser when they went home that evening than they had been when they came this matter of going home deserves a little attention it marked an important era in the lives of some. James Ward, by the merest chance, had been standing near to pretty little Amy when supper was announced, or it is probable his courage would not have been equal to waiting on her to the table. But the bright little efforts at conversation in which they two had indulged had had all the charm of novelty to him, and besides, was not Jack Butler exactly opposite, bestowing an occasional supercilious glance in their direction? What if he should ask to see Miss Amy home, and what if Jack Butler proposed to do the same thing, and he should be in advance of Jack, and Miss Amy should not refuse him? Would not that be a delightful triumph? It was a bold undertaking. How bold it appeared to him you will hardly be able to imagine, unless you are a young man who have been entirely isolated from the society of young misses until the very thought of attempting any of the most ordinary courtesies towards them flushes your face and sets your heart to throbbing. It was a miserable motive. I regret that he had not a better one. 
but truth compels me to state that every time James Ward thought of his enemy, Jack Butler, and of his possible intentions toward the pretty Amy, the desire grew upon him to attempt, at least, to discomfit him. Now it happened, strangely enough, that the head of the pretty Amy was somewhat troubled with a like thought. Since young Ward had been under the ban of her father's command, she had not even talked with him at the circle. Not that she had avoided this entertainment, but he had been so absorbed in his work there as to have given her no opportunity. But on this evening, when he, having canvassed the subject, boldly invited her to the dining-room, she had been standing beside her mother, and, receiving that mother's smiling nod of assent, little Amy had accompanied with a light heart the one who was certainly the hero of the evening. Half an hour afterwards she twitched her mother's sleeve with an important question. "'Say, Mama, suppose Mr. Ward should ask to walk home with me. What am I to say?' "'Well,' said the mother, looking with admiring and yet half-troubled eyes on her pretty daughter, "'I don't know. He appears like a very nice young man.' and her eyes wandered over to where he stood, and bestowed a swift glance of appreciation on his new and finely fitting suit. He has made a most creditable appearance this evening in every way, and Dr. Monteith tells me he thinks very well of him indeed. I don't think Papa would object, Amy, for this one evening. I don't believe he will ask me, Amy said with a foolish little laugh. She referred to young Ward, not to her father but he did ask her, and had the intense satisfaction of hearing her soft pretty voice say to Jack Butler, I am engaged, thank you, when he asked the same question soon afterwards. Much ado was made in one way and another about that matter of going home. I suppose, Mrs. Chester said to her husband, as she met him in the hall, herself wrapped for the walk, I suppose we ought to have Caroline go along with us, it seems a very singular idea, but I really don't see how she is to get home unless we see to it. Would you send a servant down to tell her to get ready? I don't believe it will be necessary for you to take that trouble, Mr. Chester said with twinkling eyes. I saw her disappearing through the front door in company with young Monteith just before we came upstairs. Well, really, declared Mrs. Chester, I never heard anything to equal that in all my life. There had never been anything in Caroline's experience quite like that pleasant walk home in the moonlight. You will remember that she had no girlish memories to look back upon of walks with companions of her own age, who talked with her about things in which she was interested, or cared particularly to hear her talk about anything. As for Kent Monteith, his real or pretended interest in the book that she had been studying had not subsided. "'Tell me the rest,' he had said, almost as soon as they were fairly on their way. "'I think your author is clear-brained at least. Let me hear more of him.' "'The rest,' Caroline said, laughing. "'I cannot think that you expect me to give you a history of our last month's work in one short evening.' Well, not each word in detail, I presume. I will be contented if you give me an idea of its effect on you. What new ideas beyond those which you mentioned has it given you? Or, in other words, what good has it done you? What good? repeated Caroline thoughtfully. I think that is a question not easily answered. 
I cannot tell what great good it may do me in the future. I feel as if a great many weapons had been put into my hands that I had not before. How I am to use them, or with whom, my Father in heaven knows, and I thank him for giving me this opportunity to arm my mind. Then you accept all the ideas and suggestions found in the book? Oh, I long ago accepted the facts about which the book treats. I found them in the Bible, and took them for my own. But what is very pleasant to me is being helped to show others, some others who have had even less opportunity than I, the reasonableness of it all. That is just what I want. Show it to me, please. You do not come in my list, she said gently. And why not? Because you have had abundant opportunities, and I cannot but think that you have availed yourself of some of them. It would be so exceedingly foolish to suppose that you had not. Well, suppose I have, and suppose that I find myself not helped as you have been. Suppose I feel utterly unable to see the reasonableness of it all. Suppose, for instance, I were to confess to a belief that the evangelical idea of prayer was entirely inconsistent with the idea that God knows everything, has planned everything, has settled everything, and therefore it cannot be changed, not even if the whole created universe were to pray that it might be. What have you learned from your book that can help me? Nothing, said Caroline promptly. I suppose there may be arguments for that class of persons, although this writer did not take up that phase of the subject. But I should think there was only one that would be perfectly satisfactory and unanswerable. Well, now, if there is one which answers such a description, it is clearly your duty to give it to me, for I tell you frankly that I have never found it. I know it, was her quiet and to him surprising answer. May I be permitted to ask just what that quiet little sentence means? You know that I have never met this one answerable argument, do you mean? I know you have never given it a fair and careful study, or you would not now be questioning the fact. You are very positive, he said, laughing a little. All minds do not work alike, you remember. Possibly it would not be so perfectly convincing to me as it has been to you. In his heart, he said, what an opinionated little thing it is, after all. I fancied I had found a curiosity, a woman who did not suppose that she had scaled the heights of all wisdom, because she knew a little about two or three things. The absurdity of her supposing that she has alighted upon an argument which I have not studied and could not answer if I chose. Then, carefully hiding all this undertone of thought, he added, I am all attention, and really almost overwhelmed with curiosity as to this unanswerable argument which has been hidden from me for so many years. I should think it would be an unanswerable argument as to the power of prayer for a person to pray daily, sometimes hourly, and receive unmistakable answers to prayer. All the combined wisdom of the world, though it was poured into my ears in the form of arguments to which I could make no answer in words, would not convince me that God does not hear my prayer and answer, because I have daily proof from himself that he does just that thing. As to how he can do it, or why he chose to do it, or how the seeming contradiction between that and his foreknowledge is reconciled, while it would be very pleasant for me to know, as it is pleasant for me to know so many of the things which I have learned in this book, 
After all, it is not essential to my belief in the fact. And I really should think, as I said, that the personal knowledge of the fact would be the only unanswerable argument to some minds. What is perfectly unaccountable to me is the fact that honest questioners do not apply this simple test to themselves and settle all doubts. Now was the scholarly young artist astounded. He had studied carefully, he was gifted in argument for one so young, he believed himself to be thoroughly posted, yet there was undeniable truth in the fact that he had never personally tested the power of prayer. "'It is a test which it is impossible to apply,' he said at last, speaking shortly, all his gay courtesy apparently gone. "'An honest man could not kneel down and pray when he did not believe that there was any such thing as an answer to prayer.' An honest man could kneel down and ask God to give him a belief in the doctrine of answered prayer, and if I were an honest unbeliever, I would ask God for that, on my knees, day after day, until I was convinced that I had come to him with all the sincerity I possessed, and laid the fact of my unbelief before him, and asked for help and had not received it. I have often thought that if all honest unbelievers would but stop their reasoning, trying to plan out God's work for him, and go to him with the whole story, how quickly it would silence all doubt, for faith is the gift of God. What proportion of them do you suppose really put that test, Mr. Monteith? I don't know, he answered briefly. Then, after a moment, you say Walker does not discuss this phase of the subject? Not at any length. Indeed, I should hardly say that he touched upon it. He takes certain truths for granted, among them the power of prayer. Where do you find the unanswerable argument which you have been presenting so skillfully? In the Bible. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. Have you studied that book carefully, Mr. Monteith? Cross-examined, I declare, exclaimed that gentleman, but the sentence was mental. To the questioner he gave a somewhat evasive answer, and then most skillfully changed the subject. He had had enough of both Walker and theology for one evening. End of chapter 16